Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. The Sermon on the Mount is now behind us. The final observation made about that famous sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, is that Jesus had an unmatched authority in his teaching. He, of course, had the inside scoop on the ways of the kingdom. And as a result, he was able to teach a way of life that nobody else could possibly speak into. That key word, authority, will carry over into the passages we'll read in this episode also. Let's keep that in the back of our minds as we start to read together. We'll begin with Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servants. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Jesus descends the mount and is immediately greeted with a special need amidst a unique set of circumstances. We read here that some Jewish elders have come to Jesus with a sudden, sincere request for a miracle. The irony wouldn't be lost on Jesus here. Remember that this was likely the same group of people who had previously shown disdain towards Jesus. They had previously questioned the company he kept, as well as his apparent disregard for the Mosaic law. But now they are turning to him on behalf of a man in need. And it's not just any man. It's a Roman centurion. This rank tells us he was in charge of 100 of the men who facilitated oppressive rule over their nation. A significant portion of Roman soldiers were strategically stationed in that area, about 6,000 men, according to some scholars. And in Roman military, this was called a legion. They were poised and ready to deal quickly with any uprising in the area, Jewish or otherwise and this centurion was a member of its leadership team. But despite their ominous presence, it appears soldiers posted in Israel would sometimes develop an affection for the religion they were surrounded by, and they would even become less pagan in their lifestyles as a result. For example, Acts chapter 10 tells us about a God-fearing centurion named Cornelius. We're told that both heaven and earth knew him for his devotion and generosity. And through the ministry of the Apostle Peter, his household became a gateway for Christian mission to the non-Jewish world. At the cross, we see a centurion deeply touched by the crucifixion of Christ. And from that viewpoint alone, he could deduct Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. The centurion in our passage today is one of those soldiers who held deep respect for the ways of the Jews. We are told that he even built a local synagogue to facilitate Jewish worship. He could possibly be what the local Jews would call a God-fearer. He is most certainly not a converted Jew. 
but is clearly sympathetic to their cause and likely to be active in his devotion to their God. But despite his contributions, his respect and possible participation, he still wouldn't be regarded by the Jewish leaders as one of them. There would still be something like an invisible barrier in place, and he would continually feel like he's on the outside looking in. The reality was that unless he fully converted to Judaism, with circumcision being part of the process, he would always be regarded in Jewish terms as an unclean pagan. However, he still clearly gained the Jews' respect. These Jewish elders in the passage considered him worthy of a miracle because of how much he had done for them with his finances. But even as we admire this respect, it actually exposes one of the fatal flaws in the first century Jewish system. There is a hierarchy deciding who was divinely favoured or not. And in this case, their decision is transparently based on outward expression and contribution. In the eyes of the Jewish leaders, this soldier is a giver. He is an almost valid worshipper. For a Roman soldier, that makes him a pretty good guy. And as far as they were concerned, he was one of the ones worthy of Jesus' time and ministry. This, of course, comes with an unspoken jab at Jesus' methods at the same time. This centurion is so unlike all the other people that Jesus had been helping and hanging out with thus far. These Jewish leaders who were advocating for the centurion's cause previously didn't believe in Jesus' teaching or appreciate the nature of his ministry. Part of the problem was that they didn't like some of those he attracted. They didn't like the idea of a rabbi mixing it up with a tax collector or other lowly members of the community. From the elders' perspective, these people had no interest in the things of God until Jesus came on the scene. They had been deemed by many Jewish leaders as simply too much work and really not worth ministering to. At least this centurion had an entry-level grasp on God. He would be considered a warmer prospect. He'd be less work. And it might even be more in God's interest to reach this man, given his desire to spread his wealth their way. It's as if the Jewish elders are saying this to Jesus. If you're going to do all this ministry stuff, at least direct it to more deserving and, well, better people. But what these Jews didn't anticipate here was just how much of a better man this soldier would turn out to be in the eyes of Jesus. Let's read on a little bit more. Luke chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This centurion had an amazing grasp on the ministry of Jesus, and that comes out so clear here. Let me paraphrase the statements of the centurion here. I don't have a full grasp on this whole religious thing, but I think I've got a bit of an idea about you, Jesus. You have something special that I recognize. You are clearly a guy who comes from a higher power, and you clearly have delegated authority that you have full power to use or withhold. 
I think I understand that. I've got an upline command that I answer to, but I am also given authority to use at my own discretion. Being a Roman, I'm not completely sure about who your upline actually is, but I've seen and heard just enough of you to know that what you say goes. So I don't need to be wowed with a visual sign or a big display of power. I just need you to speak one authoritative word into my home, and that will be enough. Let's unfold that a bit. First, this centurion sees what Israel's leadership has thus far refused to acknowledge, the true authority of Jesus. Despite the many times Jesus demonstrated the authority he had, the Jews were still not buying it. And we've only recently learned that even his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was presented with an authority that clearly didn't come from men. The crowds were seeing it. The leaders were not. And even this centurion, the one most unlikely to work this out, had gotten this conclusion about Jesus absolutely right. Second, we see that the centurion would display faith that Israel's leadership had thus far refused to display. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that faith is being certain of what we don't yet see, and that without such a certainty, pleasing God would not be possible. This centurion demonstrated faith that lived up to that challenge. He hedged his bets entirely on the vocal command of a controversial rabbi. He had one shot of connecting with Jesus and even authority to retaliate if nothing happened. He could have perhaps demanded that Jesus come to the house and do the job properly, but he doesn't. He had the faith to see that Jesus' word would be enough. You have to understand here that this was truly amazing faith. This was a man used to getting his own way, yet relinquishing his sense of power. This was an act of placing the authority of Jesus, even though he didn't understand the source, above his own sense of personal authority. This was a pagan from a land where many gods were worshipped, taking a man who claimed to be the Son of God at his word, without a hint of reservation, for no other reason than what he felt in his heart regarding Jesus and the divine authority he had. And as we read on, we see that this was one of those times that captured the heart of Jesus like no other. Let's switch gears here and read the rest of the story from Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 to 13. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. We just read that Jesus was amazed. In the older classic King James Version, the passage tells us that Jesus marveled. Basically, he was utterly captivated at what he had just encountered. According to the Gospel accounts, this only happened twice. 
It happened earlier when his friends at Nazareth rejected him out of hand as he spoke in the synagogue. When those attending shifted from wonder to rage in the blink of an eye, Jesus experienced this emotion. The other time is in this story now. This passage exposes the deepest unbelief of his own Jewish people at one end and the unprecedented faith of a heathen Gentile on the other. It's a powerful contrast that leads to a powerful warning to the Jewish elders. Let me paraphrase Jesus' words once again here. When the kingdom of God is fully here, people who are outsiders like this centurion are going to sit in that kingdom and eat a meal with your patriarch, Abraham. And through unbelief, some of you sons of Abraham are never going to even meet him. Instead, the kingdom of God will reject you. The nation of Israel, under the leadership of the Pharisees, had become unnecessarily bound by the document known as the Law of Moses. I say bound by it because they had worked hard to expand and clarify this law so much that there were hundreds of additions and traditions added to this document in order to follow the law more fully, or dare I say, perfectly. The idea was that the more perfect you could be, the more ready for Messiah you could be. Today, we call this ungodly burden legalism. Nobody could live up to the standard that they had created. But Israel was actually founded in a way where a human reaction more noble than perfection attracted God's favor and got things started. It started with the patriarch Abraham, and we are told his only claim to be a recipient of God's favor was simply taking God at his word. Hebrews tells us this act of faith was credited to him as righteousness. He was put in right standing with God simply because of faith. There was, in fact, no written law at that time, as Moses was still more than 400 years away. It was just a small bunch of people forming together under the banner of faith in the one true God. Through Abraham and his people, his nation, on the foundation of simple faith, The promise in Genesis was that all the nations will be blessed through him and his descendants. The law-bound Israel of Jesus' day was not concerned with radical faith, only the letter of the law. And in this passage, Jesus was amazed at how stuck they truly were. In fact, they were so enamored with the law that they had lost their capacity to operate in the simple faith of their patriarch. In contrast, this centurion was a breath of fresh air to Jesus because he captured the heart of God that was on display when Israel was first formed. He had his finger on the spiritual pulse here and was able to see the true foundation of what it first meant to be a follower of God. It wasn't the Jewish ceremony and rulebook that saved the centurion's servant that day. It was his raw, grassroots faith in the authority and word of Jesus that did. This centurion was also a breath of fresh air in another key way too. At the start of the passage, the Jewish elders came to Jesus with a clear sense in their mind about who was in and who was out with God, who was worthy and who was not. This was nothing more than sinful pride in play here. But this soldier showed tremendous, even marvelous humility. It is displayed in his statements to Jesus, 
I am not worthy for you to come into my house. It's worth remembering here that this is the same neighborhood where tax collectors and other unsavory characters would host Jesus in their homes. But this decorated soldier couldn't see his own worthiness. One of Jesus' qualities was humility in that he specifically didn't use power to his own advantage. And I think this centurion was doing a similar thing here. It's as if he realized that no matter how powerful he was in the physical world, there was a realm where he was indeed powerless. And he recognized this to be the case with the failing health of his servant. He needed an authority that he did not have. And he was aware he needed to be humble to receive it. Friend, genuine humility always wins with God. We cannot bring our own sense of worthiness to God and demand that he work on those merits. We need to grow in the understanding that worthiness to receive what God has for us is nothing to do with what we bring to the table. Instead, it's everything to do with what the cross brings. Through simple, humble faith, we gain Christ's attention. And through what he has accomplished for us, we do become worthy before God. Worthy to receive miracles. Worthy to receive his salvation. Worthy to become sons and daughters of God. So friend, when did you last operate in centurion-styled faith? Faith that comes in complete humility to Jesus. Faith that abdicates anything or any thought within ourselves that seeks to rule where Jesus wants to be. Faith that gives Jesus full authority. Faith that hands the keys of our lives and hearts over without reservation. Faith that simply takes Jesus at his word. That is the place a follower of Jesus takes in their personal faith. And from this passage, we see it's the place where Jesus stops in his tracks for us and meets us where we are at. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page, and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.